Thank you, guys. If there is a song to hear on repeat, that one is probably it. This morning, we are moving in to a very lengthy passage of Scripture. Some, what, like 50 verses. A long dialogue. And it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, It's one that many years ago I preached in full, and I think it was a disaster. And uh, so over the next probably five weeks we will work through these 50-some verses um, and let them be soothing to our soul. Many of you know the great itinerant evangelist George Whitfield from England, um, crossed the Atlantic Ocean 13 times, um, all for the sake of preaching and missions and setting up an orphanage, all sorts of things. But in the mid-1700s, there were not just one traveling preacher, but, but many. And their ministry resulted in the Great Awakenings, right? The Great Awakenings happening just prior to the American Revolution, mid-1700s, as I've said. And throughout these great awakenings, these itinerant preachers, of which George Whitfield was one, as the Wesleys were, were traveling preachers, there were many in England as well, they would go around and crowds would gather. Crowds would gather to hear these men preach the gospel. And at one point, George Whitfield, he visits Philadelphia, where he and Ben Franklin developed a friendship. Now, if you know any, Ben Franklin is not a Christian, not a believer in any way, shape, or form, but they were friends, Whitfield and Franklin. And so while Whitfield was there, Franklin went to listen, and he estimated by doing some kind of Ben Franklin-type arithmetic that he went backwards from the stage so many blocks and then estimated how many people could stand within the radius of those blocks and estimated that about 30,000 people gathered in Philadelphia to hear George Whitfield preach. 30,000. That's more than the soccer stadium downtown. The soccer stadium downtown holds 15,000. So double that stadium gathered to hear George Whitfield preach the gospel. Double. Now again, no microphones, no electricity, no technology. It's shocking to think about. But the point of the story, the point of this whole thing is, during the Great Awakenings, there developed a bit of a schism, a separation between churches who thought everything that was going on was amazing. Here, having 30,000 people and all the baptisms and all all the people receiving the gospel was amazing. The new lights. The new lights, they were called. But there were also the old lights, who were skeptical, who weren't so comfortable with the itinerant preaching, who weren't, wasn't so comfortable with the number of baptisms that were happening because of the number of people who would be baptized or, or proclaim the name of Jesus, but then never enter a church. Never enter into fellowship, 
Never enter into membership. Never enter into the Lord's Supper. Never enter into discipleship. Valid, very valid concerns. The same thing has has happened today, right? The same conversations can be had about Billy Graham and his ministry. The concern. And that's a lot of what we're going to see over the next five weeks as we work through this passage of John is that same concern. The crowds who gather to observe and watch for the sake of entertainment, for the sake of seeing something exciting, for the sake of having their eyes and ears and senses tickled. That's where we come to. With this text, that's where we come to over the next several weeks. So here is what John 6, 22 to 34 says. On the next day that remained on the other side of the sea, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the good that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we receive your word may our hearts and minds be clear and free of distraction lord may the bread of life come and rest upon our hearts and minds may we devote all of our lives to this bread of life In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, bit of context. Over the last two chapters, we have Jesus constantly interacting with crowds of people. Some commoners, some religious authorities, right? Way back in chapter 4, we have Jesus healing 
the son of the official. Chapter 5, we have Jesus healing the lame man by the pool. And all of these things, right? Think back to the signs and wonders that have been performed already. And then these healings, we have this buzz that is being created. Jesus is making a name for himself in some way. People are starting to recognize and see what is happening around this man as he goes around place to place. And there's a purpose, right? The purpose of John, the whole reason for the book of John is to show that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That is what he's demonstrating constantly by the miracles and the signs and the healings and the feeding and the walking on water is to demonstrate I am not just some teacher. Chapter 6, just a few weeks ago, right? Jesus feeds the 5,000. And as Jeff said, it was certainly more than that that were there. 5,000 men. And after he feeds these men, after these families come to watch and come to eat and come to see, Jesus retreats into the mountains. He retreats into the mountains. And the disciples... They tell us, John tells us, get into the boat and leave without him. Jesus has retreated to the mountains. The disciples get into the boat and leave. And over that night, during that night, is when Jesus walks onto the water, which we talked about last week, demonstrating his authority over creation, walking on water. But the next day, this is where we come to now in our passage, the next day they wake up. Verses 22 to 24. They wake up. The crowd was still there. They see that the boat was gone. And they can't find Jesus anywhere. The crowd remained. There's only one boat. Jesus didn't get into the boat. The boat's gone. So, buzz. More buzz. Where, where did Jesus go? There was a boat. We saw the guys get into the boat, the boat leave. Jesus was not on the boat. But Jesus is not here now. The buzz is becoming more and more. And it tells us that more crowds have arrived. Right? Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread. So more people have come. Did they hear of what Jesus did feeding them? And maybe they came from another city on a port. I don't know. But more people have come. And so what do they do? Just as when Jesus was there and they come from the city to get fed, so they see that Jesus is not there and they go looking for him. They go looking for him. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Looking for Jesus. At the end of this passage, it's going to tell us that they find him. He's in the synagogue. This is where this dialogue takes place in the synagogue. We won't find that out until verse 59. But that's where this 
conversation begins. Jesus mysteriously gone. More people coming. More people wandering, wandering, looking for Jesus. For the one who filled their bellies, to use Jesus' language in this passage. And here's our first point this morning. Our first point this morning from this passage is that our temporal sustenance, our temporal sustenance is just that. It is temporary. It is temporary. All of those things that you imbibe in, that you partake in for for fulfillment, for fun, for joy, for pleasure, for sustenance, It is only temporary. It is only temporary. And those things will never fulfill you. Verses 25 to 27. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? How did this happen? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill. But because you ate your fill. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. There is so much to unpack in those verses. So they find him. They find Jesus, right? They figure out, okay, there is no way this guy has crossed the sea, gotten to Capernaum by walking around the lake. There is no way that has happened. So they get there. They find him. Jesus, how in the world did you come here? When did you arrive? And they call him Rabbi. Rabbi, when did you come here? Remember what the word rabbi means, a teacher, a religious teacher. And it echoes, right? You hear those echoes of Mark 1, that this teacher, this rabbi, was one who had authority. He taught as one who had authority, not like the scribes is what Mark tells us. But this is a a strange conversation. Those of you who have children, those of you who have taught in the classroom, right, you know what it's like when your child speaks back to you. What are you doing, Mom? What are you doing? How did this happen, Dad? It's kind of the tension in the room with this conversation. Rabbi, you know you have authority. Mom, one who has authority, what are you doing? How did did you make this work? And they question him. They question him. And Jesus does what? He ignores the first question. He ignores the first question and he calls their attention. Truly, truly. When you hear truly, truly, it is a call to attention. It is a listen to this. Truly, truly. Ignoring the question about how he got there. Truly, truly. Listen to me. Listen to what I'm about to say. You are seeking me 
Not because of the signs that you saw. Not because what I have demonstrated for you. You are seeking me because you are hungry. And now your bellies are full. Your senses have been pleased. Their perception of the kingdom is totally warped. And Jesus is reorienting that now. This whole passage is a reorienting of the kingdom for these people who are questioning, who are listening. Their desire was for food. Their desire was fulfilling their, their senses, getting their senses pleased. And Jesus tells them, no, no, you have seen these signs, but you are just following me because your senses have been fulfilled, because you are full. But no, reorient your perspective, reorient it. Your desire should not be for food that spoils, but should be for food that will never go bad. Food that will always sustain you. And there is only one source, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Which comes from where? The Son of Man. The Son of Man, a term from Daniel. Right? This is a less politically motivated term, like the word Messiah. That would hold very heavy political implications in, if, if he were to use them. Son of Man is much more of a revelatory, revelation, a term of, of end times, as we see in the book of Revelation, why John uses it there as well. So he uses this term from Daniel, which should be turning on some light switches as the listeners hear it, right? Especially they're in the synagogue. It's impregnated with these terms of Messiah, but not political. And in the way that he's speaking, he is doing what with this term? He is implying that it is him. Do not work for food that perishes, but for that which will give you eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He uses this term elsewhere in John, right? I've said that a second ago. And on this Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. Set his seal, right? Like the wax stamp on an envelope back in old times, a seal of authenticity. A few years ago, I bought a, a signed Buffalo Bills helmet from Jordan Poyer, our safety, who's hurt. And in that little box came a seal, a proof of authenticity. And so it is with the Son of Man. Jesus has the seal of the Father. The proof of authenticity. John chapter 2. Recall those verses. John chapter 2. Oh, I wrote down the wrong verses. I'm talking about the verses in which Jesus is baptized. And the Son of Man is in the water 
and the Father has revealed that he is well pleased and the Spirit descends upon him. The seal of authentication, of authenticity. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is speaking of himself. He is implying this of himself that he is the authentic one. He is the one who provides eternal nourishment. And so what for us, what for us, what perishable bread are we eating? Recently, I've, I've taken this job with Louisville City, right? A dream job. Something that I have always wanted to do. Work in a professional soccer club, on the soccer field, be able to interact with all of these people. And over the last several weeks, here's how I've described it to some people as they ask. I feel as if sometimes I am on my own Ecclesiastes journey. What do I mean by that? Ecclesiastes, it's just a chasing after the wind. I love this game. A dream job. But there are times in which I feel my pursuits are just that. A chasing after the wind. And so what is it? What perishable things do you love so much that you're willing to change a career over? Or that you're willing to invest money and time and blood and sweat into? Because those things is, are the perishable bread that Jesus is telling this crowd to let go of. What are your perishable delights? What are your perishable pleasures that there is never enough of it? You are always looking for more. You are always hungry for more. You are never satisfied. And this is not true of only non-believers. Every single one of us in this room, I know for a fact, is chasing after things that are perishable. They will be rolled up like a scroll and burned, to use scriptural language. Kind of like our, our cell phones. The dopamine hit every time you receive your alert and notification, Right? Instagram, oh, boom, I got a notification alert. The dopamine hit comes, oh, I got to check that. It's exactly what this is. You get this sudden moment of delight. You got to go back. I love it. I got to go back. That's what addictions are made of. And so what are those things? What is your Ecclesiastes journey? What is it you are chasing after that will be burned up and gone. True fulfillment, true rest, true peace comes only from one singular source. No matter how high up in the professional soccer game you go, satisfaction will never become real. It is only, only with our Lord and Savior. Here's what Jesus says to the woman at the well two chapters ago. And the concept is the same. 
Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Just like those who are eating the bread, they're going to be hungry again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what did this woman say to him in response? Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She wants the water. She doesn't know how to get it. She doesn't want to have to keep going to the well. But what Jesus is saying is there is one source, one singular source for eternal nourishment, for eternal sustenance, for eternal fulfillment. One singular source, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Uh, Point two, verses 28 and 29. The call of the Christian, the call of the Christian is not to continuously do, do, do. But the call of the Christian is simply to trust and to believe. It is not to strive and to work and to do and to work some more. It is to trust and to believe. Remember what I told you about William Grimshaw, the old English preacher, friends with George Whitfield, actually. He would, before he became a believer, would keep a list on his desk of right and wrong. Good things he did that day, bad things he did that day. And he would track, trying to minimize the list of bad and extend the list of good, thinking and believing that those were the works of God. That that was his source of salvation. It's interesting what Jesus says here, 28 to 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Right, here's what they hear. Do not work for the food that perishes, work for the food that endures forever, is what they hear. And they respond to him, well, what work is that? What is that work I need to do? This, this Actually, this translation in the ESV, I think, is a little more confusing than what the actual translation is. Here's what the NIV puts it. And this is a much more clear understanding of the text. Here's their response. What must we do to do the works that God requires? That's what they are asking him. So don't work for food that perishes, work for food that does not perish, that gives eternal life. And their response, well, what work must we do? What is the work that God requires? And isn't this the ultimate question that this world has been asking since day one? Everybody, agnostics, atheists, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, deists, nominal Christians, 
This is the question. This is the question upon which everything hinges. What must I do? What must I do to make God happy? What must I do to go to heaven? What must I do to have eternal life? Nicodemus chapter 3. What must I do to be born again? That's the question they're asking. What must I do? What must we do? That's the question. And Jesus' response is shocking, right? Because every one of those types of people you go ask, what must you do? They will all have an answer, most of them. Some of them won't know how to answer that question. They will all have an answer, and none of them will be what Jesus tells them to do. What Jesus tells us to do. What must we do to do the work that God requires? Here's the work. This is the work of God that you believe. That's it. That you believe in the one whom he has sent. What must I do? What does God require of me? Just trust and believe. Not like some Christmas movie, like the Polar Express. Not like Star Wars and the Force. Trust the Force, Luke. Not that. Trust and believe in the second person of the Trinity who is broken in from the outside to go on a mission specifically and only to redeem his people. I've mentioned Whitfield already. I've mentioned the Wesleys already. Back when they were in Oxford together where they went to school before they were believers, they were part of a little club. Guess the name of this club. Some of you know it, I'm sure. The Holy Club. The Holy Club. If I were ever in the Holy Club in high school, I would have been beaten up. But here is why. The Holy Club. They maintained that they must constantly do works of holiness to receive God's good gift of salvation. And so, mockingly, their peers called them the Holy Club. And that's what they became known as. What were their works? They were trying to do the works that God requires. I don't know what that would mean. Feeding the poor. I don't know back in the 1700s what that looks like, what that means. But that's who they were. Because like this crowd, they too wanted to do the works that God required. But they missed the whole point. And it took the Wesleys getting on a boat, crossing the Atlantic, meeting some German believers, experiencing a storm on the sea to realize, yikes, I'm in way over my head and I have no idea what I'm doing. Because they thought they had to go and do these things to merit God's favor. I love this passage from Luke chapter 10. Hopefully I wrote this one down correctly. 
because it demonstrates for us. It's not a parable. It's an actual account. But it speaks exactly to this situation. Luke 10. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. You know this, this account. And she had a sister called Mary. And what did Mary do as Jesus visited? Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Does this not speak to what Jesus is saying, likewise telling to this crowd? Does it not speak to what you and I might experience as believers trying to live holy lives and subtly crossing over that gray area where it's no longer holiness, but it's religiosity. It's law-keeping. One sister sits and listens. She sits and receives from the Lord. The other sister cannot help herself, but she is constantly working to make sure everything is done just as it should be. Working to earn the Lord's favor. She even says, Jesus, tell her to get up and help. And here's what Jesus says, though. And you know this response. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha again, the double repetition, calling to attention, Martha, listen to me. Listen to me, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. What words those are. What must I do to achieve God's salvation? You are troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary, is what Jesus says. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And what is that good portion? Trusting and believing. Her concern is what? Her concern is not that she has earned her place on God's refrigerator door, like Martha's. Her concern is that she is sitting at the feet of Jesus the Messiah and taking him in and receiving what he has to offer. We can offer nothing back. Martha, what everything Martha offered was not needed. But it was Mary and it was Martha who needed to be receiving just as we cannot offer anything in our salvation. There is nothing we can do. And I think as Jesus says here, this is the work of God. 
Only he, only he can make these changes. Only he can turn that heart of stone into a heart of flesh and blood that's beating and alive. I'm getting ahead of myself. What are we to do? We are to come and sit. We are to come to Jesus and see. We are to come to Jesus and experience his grace. I know I mention my salvation story a lot. But why shouldn't we, right? Think of your story. The time in which your sin gripped you so much that you realized there was a problem. The time in which your sin has so gripped you that you recognize there is a problem. That your life was not what it should be. The time in which you heard those sweet words of the gospel. You heard the sweet call of Jesus. Like Hosea, going out into the streets, calling after Gomer, who is out in adultery, living in the streets of darkness. So you and I were, so we have been gripped by that sin, and still so Jesus comes out into the street, into the darkness, and calls. Into your sin, into your darkness, into your wickedness. Our Savior comes and calls and says, just like Mary, come and sit. Come and sit. This is the work of God. This is the work of God. His Spirit stirring up in us this regeneration. This work of the Son applied to us. And the work of the Father who before time began called you so that his Son may redeem you. So that the Spirit may save you, may beckon you, may change you. Lastly, finally, Jesus is the only source for eternal fulfillment. Temporary, temporal sustenance is just that. It is temporary. It will fade. It will disappear. And there is only one place for this eternal fulfillment to be eternally satisfied. Verses 30 to 34. So they said to him, this is amazing, the the question, another question. And they don't get it. Think of all of the things I said in the context of this book. All of the things that he has done already, many of which they've already witnessed. This question leaves me baffled. But we would ask the same thing. We would ask the same thing. Here is what they say. So they said to him, okay, what sign do you do, Jesus? What sign do you do so that we may believe in you? What work do you perform? Think of, just let that question sink in. 
the day before, literally less than 24 hours before, on a mountainside with a few bread and a few pieces of fish, he fed at least 5,000 of them. So much so that there were baskets gathered of leftovers. Then he walks on water. He crosses the lake and gets to the other side, which maybe they, have, they didn't see, certainly. But John tells us, because the disciples saw it, he walks on water. He heals the man at the pool. He heals the son, he, uh, the, the guard's son, the, the, the official's son. He turns water into wine. All of these things. Let that question sink in. Well, Jesus, what sign are you going to do for me? Why should that sink in? Because that's just like us. This church is in the pits. Jesus, what sign are you going to do to make it fixed? My life sucks. Jesus, what are you going to do? I had a science teacher, 7th grade, Miss Hagar. She was a little old lady. She told us that one day she said she would believe in God if God made a butterfly go by her. And apparently it did. And so she believed in God at that. Jesus, what are you going to do to make me believe? It's just like us. And they continue. So, not only do they ask that question, but they give Jesus now a little bit of teaching. Here's what they say. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Recalling Exodus 16. They left Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're grumbling. They're hungry. Oh, the fish we had in slavery sounds really good. The onions, the peppers, the vegetables, the meat. Those things sound great. Take us back to Egypt. Put us back into slavery for all we care. That sounds really good. And so bread falls from heaven to nourish their complaining stomachs. And they eat, and they're fulfilled, and they complain, and soon enough, 40 years later, they're still in the wilderness. But Moses did this sign. So Jesus, what are you going to do? Consider the fact that Jesus literally just fed them bread and meat less than 24 hours before from nothing. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, again, truly, truly, listen up. Listen, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. So point one, it wasn't Moses who did that. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. It wasn't Moses my Father gave that bread, and it is the Father who gives you true 
bread from heaven. And here's what Jesus says. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That is the bread that is offered. That is the bread of complete and total fulfillment. That is the bread of complete and total sustenance. Your Ecclesiastes journey, whatever that might be, is a chasing after the wind. Is a temporary bread. Jesus, the Father, offers this bread from heaven. And here, who is the bread from heaven? It is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We are entering into the Advent season. We are entering into the time in which we celebrate this exact thing. The bread from heaven coming down. Breaking in. Taking on flesh. Incarnation. We are entering this season. The Savior of the world. Coming. And their response, rightfully so, though not the end of this conversation by any means. Sir, give us this bread always. Like I said, this is not the end of the conversation. But we must take into account the topic that is being discussed here. I already mentioned Exodus 11. They are referring back to their slavery, to their breaking out of slavery, and their wandering and the sustenance that was given to them as they wandered in this world, in their, own, in their wilderness. And Jesus, again, as I've said earlier, he reframes this entire conversation, which is what the book of Hebrews does. Moses is not the one who sent the manna. The Father did. What does Hebrews tell us? Hebrews shows us exactly how Moses and all the other Old Testament religious symbols, religious festivals, religious practices do what? They are types and shadows. So Jesus is not just saying here, no, 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 listen, it wasn't Moses, it was the Father. He's not just doing that, though he is doing that. He is saying to them, I am. I am the one. I am the one who was promised. I am the better Moses. I am the one who offers the bread of life. Just as you were given this bread in the wilderness, I am the one who gives you the bread that will sustain you forever. I am the one. And it's funny. It's funny. I want to read Numbers 11, which is the parallel passage to Exodus. Exodus 16. Here's what Numbers 11 says. The parallel passage talking about Jesus being the better Moses, the, the true Moses. Moses, just a shadow. 11 verses 10 to 15. Talking about the manna. It's come down. And here's, here's what Moses records. Moses heard the people weeping 
throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. Remember, they're hungry, they're not happy. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight? That you lay the burden of all this people on me. Did I conceive all of this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, he's talking to God, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I might not see my wretchedness. Jesus, the true Moses. What does Moses do? As they complain about food and want their bellies full, Lord, kill me. That's literally what he says. Lord, kill me. I cannot carry the weight of these people. I cannot carry their burdens. I cannot carry their complaints. I cannot carry their problems. I cannot do it. Kill me. Jesus, the gospel of John, is literally the exact opposite. Lay their burdens upon me. My, my yoke is light. And upon him, upon one man, the one whom is the bread of life sent into the world from the Father, he says, lay your burdens upon me. And not only does he say it, but upon the cross, he receives them. All of your sin and your wickedness and your complaining hearts and my complaining hearts, and all of the burdens we bear. He does not complain. He does not say, Lord, kill me now so I don't have to do it. He willingly accepts the slaughter so that those burdens may be laid upon him and that he may take them upon himself. You see, this is, this is what Jesus is pulling out of this passage when he's talking about this bread from heaven, talking about Exodus 16, talking about Numbers 11. I am the bread of life. I am the one who gives the eternal sustenance. And it is I who take your burdens upon me. The greater Moses, the true Moses, the greater bread of life, 
the true bread of life, the fulfillment of all those types and shadows of the Old Testament. He is the one. And what is our call? Again, it is not to do, to do, to do. It is not to do the works of God. Though that is a responsibility we bear as believers. That is not your salvation. That is not your anchor upon which you cling. No, it is just to, like Mary, come and sit and believe so that his grace may fall upon you and fill your cup so you may be nourished. Let's pray. Father, there is so much to say. There is so much running through my mind. But Lord, your word, your scripture, is of utmost importance. And so, Lord, this morning, may we see and sit and know that our true fulfillment comes from you whom the Father has sent. Through Jesus, whom you have sent. true bread of life. May we be ever nourished by that, by him. As we seek to live lives that bring you glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.